The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended, and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad, some people will call you heroes, uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from, literally, from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we're going to have to get going again, otherwise we're going to start getting behind in time. Uh, just before I forget, uh, Bath just uh, informed me that for anyone who wanted to do the tour uh, behind the scenes and missed out earlier during lunch... Um, he'll run another tour at four o'clock when we finish. So, is there anybody who wants to do that? Oh, it's going to be a go. big tour, Buff. <laughs> <laughs> Careful what you wish for. <laughs> okay, and uh, I just want to introduce Russell Brody. He's um, really the person responsible for all this happening, and he, he started off the catalyst for this happening. <laughs> do you do? <laughs> well, I mean, you started it, but. Um, yeah, so uh, Russell's got a bit of interesting news here. Uh, some of you will know about this, but most of you um, probably haven't heard about it yet. So over to you, Russell. Thank you, Dave. Um, yeah, just a, a couple of minute talk. If Dave can fire that picture up, because I don't want to drive it in case I um, create havoc for the rest of the day. Some of you may have heard it. Um, going back a little bit, last Sunday I was just at home, happened to be by the phone, and, the, and uh, it rang, and a guy introduced himself, and Harry knew me, or we had a mutual contact. And he said, I've just found a P-40 and uh, dug up a P-40 in my paddock. My first thought was, yeah, sure. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I was keen and he seemed to know what he's talking about. Well, he really did know what he's talking about. And he did find one. Um, there's a gap. All we know and of the coincidence is that was uh, last Sunday. 
I went across on, uh, son and I, Ross, went across on Tuesday lunchtime. Uh, couldn't get there on Monday or we would have done. And uh, we'd been told where to look and under the uh, bottom of the left lingerie, just behind the pilot seat where it would be, there was a number stamped on it. And that has been tracked through. Uh, one of the guys that works for the owner of the property where this was found, he put that number out and almost within a matter of minutes, barely not hours, it went international onto a P40 restoration group and it was identified and uh, it came back through as, bear with me while I, um, uh, yeah, Dave dropped me right on this at lunchtime, thanks Dave, you'll keep. Um, so bear with me a second while I just track down this information and it tracked through, sorry, message, um, that it, from what we can, we can see, that it came through as NZ3250. Uh, there's varying reports of what its history was, but it was taken on charge in about the 3rd of uh, February 1944 at Ardmore, and it lasted a whole of 10 days, and the 13th it was written off um, on an overshoot through a fence. So, um, and it somehow between then, and it became an instructional airframe, and then it was reinstated back with its serial number, and Believe it or not, that uh, the old fella who actually paid £25 to Wigram, to the Air Force, uh, sometime after the war in the 40s, then towed it behind his car all the way down to South Canterbury. Uh, so far, there's only been this part of the fuselage, but having talked to the old fella who originally owned the property and, and bought the aeroplane back, that most of the wings and the rear fuselage and, and perhaps some of the tail is there. So we're waiting for the ground, what's happened with it. At, Probably, thankfully, it mightn't still be there. There'd been a flood at some stage and buried it. So as soon as the ground dries out, you'll know more. The most important thing to me is that it's going to... He's, he's really fired up, to say the least, the two guys that work from the kids are all at school and there was not a book available in the library of the bookshelves <laughs> in the little town down there um, uh, to, to do with anything with, with P40. So it's, his intention is that it stays local, which is brilliant. He had a call within hours of it going international from somebody in America who was wanting to buy it, so they have been turned down. So that's just a little bit of history that's, um, yes, if somebody rang you on a Sunday afternoon and said they'd found a P40 in a paddock, I'm sure you would have been the same as I was, but he, he rang one other local museum and they were like, yeah, right, pull the other one, and, and he said that museum will not be having any input into it. That wasn't the RNZF museum, another one, so it shall remain nameless, but... Um, uh, it's just exciting to see there's a bit of history and, and we now, it's, it's, we don't, we know something was somewhere and, and where did it go to, now we've got, we know it was here at Wigram, we know it's turned up in this paddock in South Canterbury, all we've got to work out is how, and as you can see it's perhaps a little bit dark but it's painted yellow um, and round under the firewall as well, so perhaps that came from, uh, you know, health and safety and road transport would hemorrhage today, but maybe he had to paint it yellow when he towed it behind his car all the way down the main road. So, um, yes, it's very yellow, and the firewall as well. So, yes. Yeah, so well, when I first saw the pictures, I went, "Yeah, he has got messed about. It is a Harvard, but there's there's definitely no doubt." And when we found the stamp number on the the bottom uh, left lingerie on. Um, that lined up with, with Curtis Manufacturing. Sadly, of course, the plate's been souvenired along the way. And, um, uh, but other bits and pieces, they've tracked down the wheels, went on a farm trailer, and they think they know where they are. The hydraulics, um, an engineering company in this little town, um, they got them. It's still family-owned, so they think they can track down some of those. The windscreen, now what did it go on? The 
on a, a farm piece of farm machinery is a windscreen on that. So we're hoping that lots of these bits can be gathered and, um, and it will become like so many things, grandfather's axe, half a dozen handles and two or three heads, but it's still that aeroplane. So all we've got to work out is how and why it left Wigram. I mean, to find out that the, the old fellow who's still very sharp, I believe, the owner of the aircraft, has spoke with him just yesterday. He rang me very excited on the way through here yesterday to say he'd talked with the old fellow. He lives in, in the North Island somewhere. He's still as sharp as a tack and he remembered everything about it. So we've got a solid leaving here and we've got a solid here it is in, the, in this paddock. All we've got to do is work out how and why. And I, when I found out it was £25, I said I'd happily double his money. <laughs> <laughs> but um, So that's an exciting piece of history, and, and it's really, it was only um, end of week before, so it's barely been out of the ground 10 days. Um, I was amazed, and we are talking yesterday about how great that, that good old zinc chromate came up yesterday, that the steel panels... Somewhere along the line it's had a digger and there was some work done in the creek so they think maybe if there was a digger through there and they were cleaning the banks, there'd been one or two big floods over the years that had damaged it. So they straightened out some of it, and, um, but the panels that haven't had a, a mark on them, you would use those today. The aluminium, there's not a hint of corrosion. Um, even the engine mount lugs there, I looked them, went hell, a quick whistle off of the wire brush um, and, and you could put them back in service. It's quite amazing. Um, you know, of the condition they're in, whether the rest of it will be as solid, but at, at least it's an identity. It becomes like grandfather's axe and, and doesn't really matter. But you want to bring hey? Yeah, yeah, well, that was my initial when I visited. You know, I was ready to fill the truck up, but then he said, well, look, we don't know exactly. It's a big area. And the, um, the old fellow, when he originally put it there yesterday, he gave him some pointers of where it probably is. So the, the fuselage had been shifted sometime in a flood. Um, but so we're going to, instead of working harder, we'll work smarter when it's drier and safer to get into this creek. A metal detector, and I've, I've even teed up with one of the guys that flies with us, just happens to have a, how's this for a coincidence, he's got a little digger and his in-laws are the next door neighbour of this place. <laughs> you start to go, we talk about coincidences and things that happen, you know, here's a... <laughs> so, um, yeah, so you guys are the, the first ones to... to um, uh, and... Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens, but you'll be the, the first to know. And initially, I was, because the guide found it and I knew that, that word got round internationally, there'd be um, people offshore who'd be offering large amounts of money, and, but this guy's not going to have his mind changed. He's absolutely fired up. and um, the, he, he would have been involved here today, but his family had booked for a few days in Fiji, which is probably a good thing, because every time I've spoken to him, which has been at least one day this week, he sounded more excited because he found something. I said, it's probably good you're going to Fiji. You're going to have to leave it for four days and the family might see you. But um, uh, anyway, so that's, that's kind of a bit of excitement that's happened locally. And I mean, who would have believed if somebody said they'd found it in New Guinea, you go, yep, that's, that makes sense. But to find it in a paddock in South Canterbury is... Um, so until the guys have with what's happening, I'm, I'm not sort of any more details than that, but it's... Um, uh, you know, so that he's not getting people turning up all over the place. But I'm sure as it gets more known, then then you people here who are the, the keen ones will know more. So, um, but thank you for that, Dave. It's nice to chance to yes. Do you have the reference number. Um, what was that? The serial number. Yeah, no, the reference number. I've got the serial number. Yeah. Yep. What we had, and I was trying to get the photo up there, just sort of at the last minute. Um, oh, I can. I can. Um, my son Ross knew where to look for it and got the. Um, uh, where are we? Sorry, bear with me. 
2905 was the number that was stamped on the um, on that bottom line, Jaron. I think you gave the wrong zero before you said uh, 3250, it was 3240. 3240, sorry. What I was looking at is I got to the bottom of the text of the guy who has it, and he apologised, or remembered, he got to the bottom and apologised because he put the wrong number. <laughs> 3240, sorry. 3240 is the number. Yeah. The, the NZ number. Yeah. Yes. So, um, cool. Thank you, Dave. Yep. And also, uh, Russell, um, it's his place we're going to tomorrow to uh, fly Russell's Tiger Moth uh, to take <coughs> Brian up on the flight. So I think that alone, a round of applause. Not necessary at all. It's it's my honour to um, have got to, to meet Brian after all these years of reading about him and and um, enthralled with that 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 it's just brilliant. Thank you for being down here. Um, you better talk to your instructor. You know I'm still learning to fly the right way. <laughs> but no, it started from just a quick how it came around that I'd been uh, given some books. An old family friend who passed away a couple of years ago. The family handed on some of his aviation books, and I was just flicking through. Brian's book, the first one, and um, and I went, oh, trained at Harewood, 43, oh, the tiger was there, and if you heard, we refer to her as um, uh, 1443 as Lily, which is short for Tiger Lily, a nickname my wife gave her when we when she first came to live with us, the aeroplane, um, and um, it seems more appropriate, and um, it's not very military, I know, but never mind, and um, so I went, well, you know, what a coincidence, I contacted Dave, who had just just a week or so before I'd been staying with us down at Wanaka, so I'd got to know him a little bit better. So I messaged him and said, you know, what are the chances and where would we find out if Brian did? And I don't think it was five minutes later, would you, bingo or something. And, yeah. and, and had the entry there, and it's all just that ball's rolled on from there. So it's um, no, it's a, a great honour to have to get the chance to meet Brian and for him to go flying in the Tigers. So I look at it that we don't... I look at, we don't own them, I'm just lucky enough to, to, to be able to fly it and make it available. It's part of all of our history, and Brian's history and so many other young men who flew it and went off, and, and one day I'd love to research. I suspect there's a large number who didn't get to come home again, and um, that's what we're expecting every time, that it's a piece of living history of 70-something <coughs> um, of years old, so it really is an honour to get the chance to... Um, Read them the last exercise I'd ever did. In a Inverted glide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just remember, though, you, you did mention to me last night, Brian, that, that getting out of the Air Force was the first time you went flying without, without a, parachute. a parachute. Yes. There's <laughs> that famous story of then, and I'm sure it happened more than once, the instructor saying to the poor student pilot, have you got your seatbelt tight? And then the student pilot thought he said, you'd better tighten your seatbelt. So he's in the process of... Pulling that, and any of flying on a tiger, the Sutton harness is, um, it's not like the, the modern ones today, that you had a pin which worked really well and there was multiple holes on the, the shoulder on the lap strap. But if it wasn't tight enough, you had to pull the clip out, reinsert the pin on there properly and put the clip back through again. And that took longer than what they had by the time the tiger was upside down. And <laughs> it's, um, we'd, never, we'd never have thought of doing that with any of our students in the past, would we, Brian, when they were not doing what they were told? <laughs> Anyway, thanks again. Thanks, Dave. Okay, um, now we'd like to welcome Errol Martin, who uh, is a renowned uh, historian, and um, he's uh, done a lot of research into New Zealanders who flew in World War One, and. Uh, 
and has been writing about them. And he's going to um, talk about a little bit about uh, the two flying schools Wigram, at, here at Wigram, the Canterbury Aviation Company, was it? Got it, yep. yep. And the um, New Zealand Flying School at Koei Marama, or actually at Mission Bay uh, in Auckland. And um, uh, a couple of the students who were involved in those, and one of them happened to be Russell's grandfather, Ross Brody. Here's Errol. So it's more of the Brody thing, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes, thanks, uh, Dave. So something about the New Zealand trained pilots for the bound for the RFC and the RAF in World War I. Um, as some of you may know, I'm presently compiling biographical accounts of all New Zealanders involved in aviation during the Great War, and in Russia during 1914 to 1919. So uh, taking it a bit further than just 1918. Well over 800 names involved, a few well known and even famous, but most not so. Draft biographies for about 40% have been completed, including those for all pilot graduates of the two New Zealand flying schools. I shall confine this talk today to those graduates, in particular the 225 who left for Britain and the RSC, and later the RAF. Excerpts and observations recorded in the letters and diaries of two such men at the time will be introduced along the way. The two schools were the New Zealand flying school at Koei Marama, henceforth Koei, is always referred to by its pupils, or NZFS, and the Canterbury New Zealand Aviation Company, henceforth Sockburn, now of course Wigram. Between them they turned out a total of 297 pilot graduates between late 1915 and mid-1919. The 72 who did not leave for Britain were mostly instructors at the schools or were awaiting orders to sail or did not graduate until after the armistice. These two wartime flying schools were unusual in that both were private enterprises unsupported by government. <coughs> the military was not directly involved but did assist with the provision of official observers when flying tests were being conducted. With the introduction of conscription, conscription in mid-1916, mid, mid flying school applicants of military age now had to first enlist with the service, for service with the New Zealand Expeditionary Force henceforth the NZEF, and were vetted by the Army. The Army's intention was partly to avoid the possibility of shirkers avoiding their military responsibilities should they fail to graduate here or later again with the RFC or RAF. Another purpose behind NZEF enlistment was that graduates leaving for Britain were able to sail as members of that force, thus not having to pay their own way. Only on arrival were they actually transferred to the RFC or RAF. On being cleared by the Army, the potential airman was then given leave from the service. This is it's still in New Zealand prior to going to the school. Usually three months, during which he was expected to graduate. If not, then he was to return to the Army. There was an age limit of 25, which meant that the large majority of candidates were born during the latter half of the last decade of the 1800s. Perhaps not surprisingly, there was the occasional instance of an applicant being somewhat forgetful as to exactly which year he was born in and thereby slipping in under the age limit. A good 40% came from farming backgrounds, the rest from a wide range of occupations including that of mechanic, often elevated on application forms to read engineer, clerk and student. Regardless of occupation, many already were actively interested in things mechanical, typically through motorbike ownership, some participating in races or perhaps more commonly 
appearing in local court case reports for exceeding the speed limit. One chap, for instance, I find it hard to believe, being fined for taking a corner in a public square at faster than walking pace. <laughs> you can find it on paper space, it's true. Both schools ran courses that trained pupils to Royal Aero Club Aviator Certificate Standard. Until mid-1916, the certificate was a prerequisite for entry into the RFC as a pilot. Although the requirement was then dropped, the New Zealand, flying school, sorry, the New Zealand schools continued to train pilots to certificate standard, with the British authorities continuing to automatically accept the graduates, subject to medical examination for RFC or RAF. The flying train would begin from scratch again on arrival there, however. The course fee was £125 at Coe and £100 at Sockburn. Other costs such as meals and travel to and from the school were additional. Pupils lived in tents at Coe, but Sockburn had purpose-built rooms to accommodate its out-of-town out trainees who chose to live at the ground. And part of those rooms still survive at the museum here. If the applicant succeeded in obtaining his certificate and was accepted into the RFC or RAF, he could then claim from them a refund of £75 of his course fee. It will be noted, therefore, that the net flying cost for those graduating at Coe was double that for Sockburn Airmen, that is £50 as against £25. From September 1916, approximately 350 put their names down at Sockburn, along with the required £5 deposit. 150, however, never began flying training, probably due to having given up waiting for a place on a course or because the army wouldn't release them. Don't have similar figures for the uh, Coe people, unfortunately. Both schools made free use of their pupils to assist with the construction of locally built aircraft, an arrangement that no doubt suited both parties, the school getting free labour and the pupil gaining technical knowledge through practical experience. The NZFS, founded by Walsh brothers Leo and Vivian, was the first to begin flying training operations in October 1915. They began with a flying boat closely resembling the American Curtis type. They had constructed it during 1913-1914 with assistance from family and friends. The Walsh's aviation experience dated back to 1910-1911 when they constructed a Howard Wright biplane in Auckland and flew it with varying success early in the latter year. Apart from a co-drawn biplane used for a brief period from December 1915 to August 1916, when it was written off in a crash, all other training during the war was carried out on either four Walsh-built Curtis look-alike flying boats or the sole genuine Curtis flying boat imported in 1916 from that company's Canadian branch in Toronto. The Walshers bought, built one more Curtis look-alike but this appears not to have become operational until early 1919. The engines of four different types, ranging from 70 to 100 horsepower, were imported, there not being the ability to have these made in New Zealand. Incidentally, on the Royal Aero Club's application for the form, form for the certificate, Curtis Flying Boat was always the description entered under the certificate taken on, never Walsh Flying Boat. The wartime flying boats were powered by either radial or inline engines. Ted Harvey in his book, George Bolt, Pioneer Aviator, gives the all-up weight of the first flying boat as 1,200 pounds, so say 550 kilos. Presumably the later and more powerful engine versions would have been heavier. The quadrun had 
originally been imported by pioneer airman Will Scotland as a replacement for his first that he had crashed in Wellington early 1914. The new machine was then also damaged in a crash, and on being purchased still in damaged condition by the Walshers, was converted to a float plane. Its original Lerone rotary engine later being replaced by an anxiety radial. In the 38 months to November 1918, 73 graduates and co-ESA for Britain. About 50% arrived in time to join the RFC, the balance arriving after the RFC and the Royal Naval Air Service had merged to form the RAF on 1 April 1918. By the time the armistice was declared on 11 November 1918, 43 of the 73 had been appointed to commissions. The earlier men before leaving New Zealand, the others sometime after entering the British Air Services. Although I've included them in the 73, the first two to sail, Keith Caldwell, well known by his nickname Grid, and Geoffrey Callender, did not actually graduate in New Zealand. Poor weather had prevented the pair completing the test to qualify for the certificate before leaving the country. In a touch of irony, although all training at Koei was conducted on seaplanes, it seems not a single Koei trained man ever went to serve with the seaplane unit in the RFC or the RAF during the war. Contrarily, a few of the land plane trained sockman pilots flew flying boats with the RAF. <laughs> the school struggled to build up momentum with its flying training, especially in its early years. Pupils sometimes took well over three months to graduate due to the shortage of aircraft, the handicap of operating off water and machines of marginal performance or because of the weather. The Sockburn School, largely the brainchild of Christchurch businessman and MP Henry, later Sir Henry, Wigram, was formed in August 1916, but commencement of operations was delayed until May 1917 because of difficulty in sourcing aircraft from England. In March 1917, the company acquired a single-seater Blériot 12 that had been imported in 1912 by James D. Walsh, not related to the Walsh brothers. It had passed through several owners but never achieved a practical flight here. This was used by the school as a penguin, that is, it could run along, be run along the ground or a few feet above it in what were called straights, in order for the new people to get a feel of the controls. Due to the difficulty created by the monoplane's castering undercarriage, its use may not have been persisted with for long. All of Sockburn's other wartime machines were co-drawn biplanes, nine in all, being a mix of single and two-seater types. Some were imported second-hand civilian machines from England, the others were constructed at Sockburn. Engine power was standardised on the Anzani radial <coughs> in 45, 60 and 100 horsepower versions. The all-up weight probably ranged from 700 pounds, say 350 kilos, for the 45 horsepower model to about 1560 pounds, 700 kilos, for the 100 horsepower. Unlike machines at Coe, their aileron control was by means of wing warping. In just 19 months to November 1918, 150 graduates from Sockburn sailed for Britain, about 10% in time to join the RFC, the balance arriving after the RAF had been formed. Because of their school's later start, only 25 of the 150 had been appointed to commissions by the time of the armistice. Conditions for entry into the RFC and RAF had changed by the time the first Sockman, Sockburn airmen were due to sail in October 1917. All left New Zealand as cadets, as did most of the later graduates from COEF. So although it began operations much later than NZF, NZFS, I should say, Sockburn was able to turn out twice as many graduates in half the amount of time, 
at a ratio of about 4 to 1. The codrons were lighter and easier to maintain and build than the flying boats. Being land machines, they required relatively little manpower to be readied for flying. Most flying, uh, more flying days were also available, as operations were not subject to water conditions. Only fragmentary information survives regarding pupils' flying hours at the two schools. These figures were not officially recorded in RFC or RAF flog books. Generally speaking, it appears that Curry pupils flew about eight hours and Sockburn pupils about half that number to achieve their certificates. The test for the Royal Air Club Aviators Certificate to be formed solo in front of two official observers were for the time basic, to say the very least. The, there were two elements. Firstly, two separate flights of at least five kilometres, three miles, each flowed as five uninterrupted figure of eights with turns alter alternatively to the right and left around two posts or buoys set not more than 500 metres, 550 yards apart, the engine to be switched off before the moment of touching down. And secondly, an altitude flight to at least 100 metres, dizzy height, 320 feet, the engine to be switched off at that height on commencing the descent to land and not switched on again until after touchdown. The flights could be spread over more than one day if necessary. A diary and letters written by Curry pupil Hugh Blackwell, who should appear on there any minute. Yep, bit of a dark picture, but there he is. Um, who came from Rangiora, incidentally, have been privately published by the Blackwell family. Blackwell, known as Blackie, entered the school on 4 January 1917. Here are some excerpts describing his time there. Sunday, 4 January. Weather windy in morning, but calmed down at 9.30. Machine taken out and had my first flight at 10am. Ripping sensation. Trip only lasted 10 minutes. Monday, 8th. In afternoon, had another flight. Had controls for a while. Tuesday, 9th. Blowing and raining hard. We're in Auckland. No flying today. My turn to clean engines. Assembling part of new machine. Walked down to St Helier's for a parcel. Evening, built barricade behind the tents. Wednesday 10th. Weather gusty. No flying. Scraped and varnished boat in the morning. Afternoon went to Auckland. I think the boat they're referring to is, is the school's boat called the Aviator. Um, where's my place? Tuesday 11th. Machine out at 5am. Only one flight. Wind gusty. Worked on new machine in morning and went for mail. Much appreciated. Afternoon in workshops. Evening bought coal from Wharf in launch. Friday 12th. Beautiful morning. Flying until 10am. Afternoon putting new machine together. I was up at 4.30 this morning and flying started a little bit before 5. It was a beautiful morning. The sun got up at, at 6am and I can tell you it's a great sight we're watching a machine 200 feet up, all flooded with sunlight. I went up about 6.30 and had a perfect flight. It only lasted eight minutes, but that is about the average flight, Walsh says. Uh, Walsh says we learn more in short trips than we do on long ones. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> Same day. I got your first letter just as I was going up on my second flight, and I felt quite inspired. I've had three flights now, the total time being 24 minutes. Walsh says that the average pilot certificate is gained in about seven hours. 
We are going to have badges here, so I will send you one down. There will be three. Two worked in cloth, which will be worn on the fine clothes and working overalls, and one on, in gilt on enamel, which will be pinned on the suit when going uptown. Friday, 16 February. Beautiful morning, several flights. Cinematograph um, down taking films all day. Had three machines out. New machine taken out of shed for the first time. Now there was further filming the next day and uh, Na Ta'anga Sound and Vision hold a copy of the 35 minute film that was later produced from this. That may also include some 1918 views. Uh, it's recently been restored to a very high standard and the quality is quite remarkable and provides unique views of personnel and machines in their operations. It can now be viewed online by the way. After many weather delays Blackwell finally qualified for his certificate on 20 March, 73 days on from his first flight. Started flying at 8.15. Mother and Nance down by 5.45 boat. I started and we did our vol planes up 650 feet. Corhees came down by 9am boat just in time to see me start flying my eights and landings. Got through well. Had honour of being the first of the five list to gain certificate. This is the five that were flying that day, or tested that day. Uh, moving swiftly on to the Brodie family. And from diary and letters written by Ross Brodie, grandfather of Ross Brodie, who is with us here today, comes this description of training at Sockburn. Ross entered the school on 16 July 1917, and had paid his £5 deposit six months earlier. It was another month before he could get airborne. But once his training got underway, he would qualify a certificate in rapid time. Saturday, 19 August. Jewel bus flown for first time with new nacelle. She climbed twice as well as formerly. I had my first joyride. It was exhilarating. Climbed a thousand feet. The climb to a thousand feet. The view was perfect and the sensation the very best that could be imagined. Had 15 minutes up, but it was far too short. March 20th. The government would not accept me on account of my age, so they wrote to Mr Hervey, the secretary, declining to accept me. Actually, at the time, Ross Brodie was um, still three weeks short of his 25th birthday, so it's a bit of a puzzle as to uh, why uh, this should arise as a problem at that time. Thursday 30, so it's 10 days later, received word from Wellington that I will be accepted if I qualify before my 25th birthday. Mr Hill, the instructor, took me up for my first tuition flight. Went upstairs for two circuits of 15 and, 20 and 12 minutes each, and then did 16 straights. Friday 31st, did 32 straights. Saturday 1 September, had 20 minutes flying, air very bumpy. Sunday 2nd, another 20 minutes flying, did 8 straights and 10 minutes upstairs. Monday 3rd, took rudders for the first time. Thursday 5th, this afternoon the school and grounds were thrown open to the public for the second time. <coughs> Excuse me. The first day was too squally for flying, so the people were promised they should have another day later, and this was the appointed day, and a very fair <coughs> one too. Although a bit windy early in the afternoon, it calmed down as the day advanced. It was reckoned that between four and 5,000 people assembled to see Mr Hill give a wonderful exhibition of flying. His great feat was to loop the loop. It was done at a height of about 2,000 feet. 
This was the first time this feat had been performed in New Zealand and done on a locally built machine. About 4pm the company supplied the visitors with afternoon tea in the pupils' quarters. Saturday 8th, had done no flying for five days until today and I did 12 straights, both, you're having both engine and rudders. Sunday 9th, did 12 more straights and then three circuits, had a try at the figures of eight. Wednesday 12th, went out on the solo machine for the first time, did all straights to get hold of the landings, which I found rather difficult. Nothing new there. Quali qualified on Saturday 15th. Did a few more landings and got on much better than on the 12th. Did three circuits. The first, this being the first time on a circuit by myself. Colonel Shaffey came out and observed Sutherland and myself take our tickets. This completed my flying at the Canterbury Flying School, having had four hours, 50 minutes in the air, including time taken on the ticket. Now Brody had actually... Um, Started his flights at 9.40 in the morning and he completed all the three flights in 45 minutes. Uh, 40 minutes. Sutherland was um, Ernest Tanifa Sutherland, Ernie to his friends. He was one of the only two graduates of Maori descent, um, two New Zealand graduates of Maori descent, the other being Charles Barton at Coe in 1918. Once the once certificate was obtained, the Airman's New Zealand flying came to an end. And he, he then left for Britain. The voyage took two months on average, the quickest being just 44 days and the longest 79. Making their way immediately to central London upon disembarkation, the airmen first reported to NZF headquarters in Southampton Road and then to the airboard at Cess Hotel Cecil in the Strand to ascertain details of their first RFC or RF posting. Blackie Blackwell sailed from Wellington on the Ionic on 11 May 1917 and disembarked at Falmouth, Cornwall on 23rd June. With them were John Fuvista, known as Fubi, Doug George, Ken Gould and Bill Warner. Fubi would be killed in a flying accident five months later. Only Blackwell and Warner would get to see service with an operational squadron. A little known fact is that as a five-year-old, Warner helped lay the foundation of Warner's Hotel in Christchurch Cathedral Square in 1901. You're always learning something. Ross Brodie sailed from Wellington on the Arawa on 13 October 1917 and disembarked at Liverpool on the 8th of December. With him were seven other Sockburn men. <coughs> Nelson Hawker, Les Limbrook, Clarence McFadden, Eric Orr, Jack Stevens, Ernie Sutherland and Edwin Wilding, who was a brother of the famous tennis player Anthony Wilding who had been killed in France in 1915. Craig Gillies and Jimmy Woods of the Cowie School completed the 10-strong party. These were the first airmen to make the journey as, can, as cadets instead of as officers. Only Sutherland of this group would see service with an operational unit, albeit only briefly, and as an observer rather than a pilot with an anti-submarine squadron for just a month leading up to the armistice. En route, the Arawa called into Newport News between 13 and 19 November. While there, some of the New Zealanders visited the local Curtis Flying School. Brodie's diary for Saturday the 17th provides an excellent account of an exciting day there. We were, about, uh, we were early about this morning, as there was general leave today from 9am to 10pm.
but as Southern, Stevens, or Limbrick and Hawker and myself were anxious to make the most of the day, we approached the OC, Captain Meikle, for earlier leave and got away at 8.30. At the end of the wharf, we were stopped by the local police who demanded our passes. But on stating that we came from New Zealand and knowing our badges, we got through at once. On reaching the taxi stand, we got into a car with a one-legged driver and drove round to the Curtis Flying School at Boat Bay, a distance of about three and a half miles. This is a private school run by the Curtis Company, where pupils take their first course in aviation. The machines we saw were all land planes of the Curtis type, fitted with the Curtis 90 horsepower engines. These buses were vastly superior to anything we had previously seen, both in size and strength, as the customer proved to us in the way he turned it about in the air, looping the loop six times without stopping and doing a spinning nosedive, which we always understood was the most dangerous thing to get into but he came out of it without the least difficulty. At the school they go in for passenger flying. For $10, excuse me, for $10 they'll take you up for 10 minutes. Loop the loop several times and do a tailspin, as we call the spinning nosedive. If you're not content with a short trip, they'll run you up to New York for $1,200. Sutherland was very keen to be the first Maori to loop the loop, so he paid us $10 and was taken up for 10 minutes, in which he did 12 loops and a tailspin, and quite near to the ground too. These parts seemed to have no fear of an engine fader, as they were looped when only 150 feet off the ground. <laughs> wonder what they're doing at Rankakata. <laughs> Brodie and Sutherland went back again next day, this time accompanied by Woods and Wilding. Sunday is visitors' day at the school, and the company set, set that day aside especially for joyriding. The pirates were going at full speed all the time we were there, taking visitors up for their $10 rides. Southern went up again, also wilding in woods. Wilding got a little extra stunt in the shape of flying upside down for a few seconds. The almost four-month gap between their respective arrivals and difference in rank resulted in quite different outcomes for the two groups of airmen. By this time, long overdue and significant changes were beginning to or about to take place in RFC flying training. Instruction now took longer and was much improved in quality. I'm just going to go back to Mr Blackwell. It took Blackwell's group three airboard visits before they were finally advised to report on 7 July to number one school of military aeronautics, headquartered at the delightfully named Cooperative Wholesale Society Jamworks in Reading. This was a ground training school. In his diary and letters, home abbreviated here, Blackwell describes his new surroundings and the nature of the training given. Sunday 8th, you'll see that at last I've started on the real thing. We arrived here from London at about 11am yesterday and reported and signed on before 1pm. Our course starts tomorrow and takes 6 to 8 weeks, generally 8. There's a juice of a lot to learn so I'm going to settle right down to it. St Patrick's Hall was taken over by the RFC about 18 months ago and accommodates about 120 officers. No classes are held here. We have to attend lectures at different halls in the town. Physical drill at 6.45am, breakfast at 7.30 and then proceed to the lecture halls for the morning. Back again for lunch and down to the town for more lectures. Dinner is at 7.30pm and is the meal of the day. Tuesday 10th, Yeomanry Hall again. Lecture on BE2C, one of our aeroplanes. Afternoon, wireless for one hour. Then Lewis machine gun. 
instructor went over all parts taking gun to pieces. Another lecture on theory. It's a very interesting course. We only receive seven and six a day until we get through. Then we draw 25 shillings and ninepence. Wednesday 11th. In the morning we went in the morning went to the construction sheds and dismantled and built up again a BE2C. This lasted all morning. Afternoon had wireless, Lewis machine gun and lecture on aeroplane rigging. Thursday 12th. Had a lecture on instruments in the morning, learning the why and wherefore. Afternoon, wireless, Lewis machine gun and lantern lecture on different types of machines. At 6pm attended orderly room for inoculation, about 50 chaps altogether. Friday the 13th, lecture on bombs in the morning, rather complicated, have to know how they work etc. Afternoon passed wireless test and put into top class. Lewis machine gun and a lecture on theory of flight. My arm feeling a bit sore. Saturday the 14th, learning correct method of patching wings. Afternoon wireless, Lewis machine gun and electron theory of flight. Completes our first week of training. Monday 16th, in morning had lectures on RFC camera and wireless plant in the physics laboratory. <coughs> Afternoon rigging. Tuesday 17th, morning up at Yeomanry Hall for a lecture on, on the theory of the FE2B. Afternoon wireless, Lewis gun and lecture on theory of flight. Over the next few weeks, Blackwell attended lectures or courses on subjects such as the Lewis and Vickers machine guns, Morse, bomb racks, sights and dropping of bombs, and at least four different engine types, the RAF, the Clergy, the Rhone and Beardmore. On Sunday the 19th he wrote, Our work is all on engines and machine guns now, and next Saturday we get an exam. This engine, is a course most, this engine course is really most interesting and must have cost the RSC some thousands of pounds to set up. There are hundreds of engines and parts taking up three large buildings. There are about 200 men going through the school every month and about twice as many cadets. I passed out of wireless last Monday, so now have that time off. I think we shall leave Reading in about a fortnight, perhaps a week, as they are very pushed for pilots. I've just been into afternoon tea. We get it every day at 5.30 and it generally consists of tea and bread and butter and strawberry jam. The dinners are not much. I think of trouble as poor cooks. And on Sunday, 5 August, yesterday we were examined on engines. The paper was very decent and I got on all right. The next week we get artillery observation. And then we will be sent to the flying squadrons. I do wish the New Zealand government would wake up and form a New Zealand flying squadron. Nothing new there. <laughs> there are seven New Zealand chaps here now and all keen on it. I think we're going to speak to the High Commissioner about it. And finally, Sunday 12th, his last day at Reading, we have completed the first stage of our training and tomorrow launch into the second. The final theory exam took place yesterday morning. It was very easy. I got on well with all the exams. In fact, I got through half and half the time allowed for papers. This morning we went to Kendrick School's RFC supply stores and do our flying kit. They issue first-class stuff, thousands of pounds worth a month. We get a large double-breasted leather coat, camel hair lined, a pair of wool-lined thigh boots, a very fine fur-lined flying, flying helmet, and a pair of dense seal-skin gloves and goggles. It must be worth 25-30 pounds easily. Tomorrow we're off to our squadrons. Blackwell spent the next eight and a half months undergoing flying training at six different units. I'll skip the details about this here, apart from saying that he graduated as a service pilot on 20 October and was at that point entitled to wear wings. 
The training finally concluded towards the end of April 1918, at which point he was considered to be a fully trained as a pilot on the RE-8, a two-seater biplane used primarily for reconnaissance, photography and artillery spotting. On 4 May, Blackwell crossed to France and joined 53 Squadron, serving unscathed with it right through to the armistice in November 1918. He received no decorations for his service, even though his commanding officer wrote a strong recommendation for one, in particular for actions on five occasions during October 1917. Writing home on the 31st, the New Zealander described one of these actions and how on the 30th he had a very close call. Until the last three days, things have been, properly, have been pretty strenuous and we have been pretty busy keeping in touch with the retreating Hun. For one of the contact patrols I did, the Corps General congratulated me but that is just for you to know. It was a very foggy day. No flying had been done. A call for a contact patrol came through, so I had to go up. During the job, we got lost seven times, but always managed to get our bearings again. Our troops were advancing behind a creeping barrage from our artillery, and we had to keep in touch with them and see if they reached their objectives. They did reach their objectives, so back we flew with our report, landed in a field next to the Corps HQ, and reported to the General. He was awfully amused at our landing in a field. It was one of the hottest contacts I've done. Besides being machine gunned by the Hun, we were only 300 feet high. We were all the time flying in a barrage of our own shells. Why we weren't hit, I don't know. Yesterday, while on photography, I had a very exciting time. We were about three miles over the Hun side of the line when Archie got almost a direct hit on us. The observer had his right hand almost blown off. I was nearly winded by the explosion of the shell and the machine was ripped about horribly. The controls on one side were cut away so I only had half the controls to get home with and still three miles over the line. We got back all right and the observer, Hudson by name, stuck out jolly well. All the way home I kept saying, I must make a good landing, I must make a good landing and happily I did. Immediately we got the ambulance up and I went with Hudson to the casualty clearing station. I left him just before he went into the operating theatre. He was still game, but obviously in great pain. Why I wasn't hit by a piece of shrapnel, I don't know. Afterwards, I counted 25 holes in the machine. Unfortunately, the buses are right off. It quite grieves me to part with it. Ever since old Burke and I were brought down, I've had this M, that's his code letter on the machine, and have done about 180 hours war flying in it, a record for this squadron, I may say. On 15 November, Blackwell left 53 Squadron on being posted to a special duties unit called M-Flight, serving with it in Belgium and Germany over the next four months before returning to England for repatriation to New Zealand, where he disembarked on 27 July 1919. Returning now to Ross Brodie on his December arrival in London, his group were also treated to several back-and-forth visits to the Air Board. They finally granted a few extra days leave and instructed to report on the 15th to Frith Hill Camp at Deep Cut, a few miles northeast of Farnborough. The camp was one of many in the Deep Cut area holding a large number of recruits who were awaiting postings to instructional units as spaces became available. On the 18th, they did an eight mile route march over frozen snow. The next day, Brodie's diary records that a party of us went to Guildford this morning to be sworn in. We walked three miles to Farnborough and took the train from there. Arriving at Guildford, we went straight to the recruiting office and went through the awful slow process of being sworn in and medically examined and received a large sum of two and ninepence. It took until 4pm to get finished and we left again by the 7.10 train, 
and arrived in camp at 8.30. The following day, another medical was endured and the airmen got fitted out with uniform and kit. Brody uh, and Rob Limbrick were then granted a few days Christmas leave and on the afternoon of their last day, the 27th, they called in at the Royal Air Club offices at 119 Piccadilly to collect their aviator certificates. So the application, they passed the test in New Zealand, the application forms then sent off to the UK, but of course because of the length of time of mail and that sort of thing, it's easier for these chaps to pick it up, pick up the actual licence produced by the club in England. Um, arriving at, where are we, uh, lost my place. On New Year's Day, Brodian Woods, who became a close friend of Ross's, took disembarkation leave and headed for Scotland to visit their respective relatives. An unexpected bonus received while they were away was an extension of from 14 to 21 days, as Orr, Hawke and Wilding had all caught German measles in camp, and the others were also isolated. At leaves end on 22 January 1918, the two New Zealanders reported to Aldershot, from whence, along with a large number of others, they were dispatched by train to number two cadet wing at Hastings, arriving there late evening. In his diary next day, Brody describes his new surroundings, which, although little work was done at the wing during his stay, would become familiar ground for many of the New Zealand cadets that were to follow. Rose at 7am and still feeling sleepy and sore after the short time in bed and sleeping on a hard floor. We did no more drill today. The day was spent getting equipment issued and setting down our billets, which are large residential quarters that have been handed over by the owners for use of the troops. There are 1,200 men built here in different parts of the town. We get much better food here. Large halls are used for mess rooms and we are waited on by the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps. This seems to be a fairly large town and is a great watering place in the summer. It has a lovely esplanade and jetties every so far. One has a theatre on it and another a skating rink. While being pointlessly and endlessly paraded on Hastings streets over the next few days, Ross and Jimmy's friends Eric, Nelson and Edwin also arrived at the wing. Probably more than a little pleased when presented with an opportunity to escape the winter cold, all five promptly applied to go to Egypt with a draft that was to leave shortly. They were accepted. This meant yet another inoculation accompanied by a sore arm. But also seven days embarkation leave beginning on the 28th. Brody describes how that night's journey to London suddenly brought them uncomfortably close to enemy action. We left Hastings by the 7.50pm train and before we had gone very far at all, the lights of the train were put out and we were told at the first stop there was an air raid on. We did not reach Charing Cross until 11.50, an hour late. We went straight to the Strand Palace but could not get a room there and were told that bombs were dropped earlier in the evening. We were just coming away when the guns started firing. We stood watching the shrapnel bursting for a few minutes, but then when down flopped a bomb with a thud that shook the whole place, and we dived for shelter and heard another fall. We visited the site a little later, and it was not 200 yards from where we had stood. One building had burst into flames, and we saw a few mangled bodies being brought out. After seeing that, we had no more wish to see another raid, but went back and got a room at the Waverley on the sixth floor. By that time, it was Tuesday, so we were glad to get to bed. When I got up, I went round to the bank and got three, uh, got two New Zealand letters. Excuse me. Then went round and had another look at the scene of the raid, but couldn't get near for the crowd. I spoke to a policeman, and he told me that there were between 90 and 100 people killed. That had been an air raid shelter, and the bomb had cut off the escape, and the building took fire. It was an awful affair. Bombs also fell between Euston and Kings Cross Station. There must have been up to 200 people killed in that raid. 
Uh, the, uh, the arrival had actually coincided with the first German uh, bomber raid on England for 1918. 67 were killed and 166 injured. Uh, three of the twin-engine uh, Gotha bombers bombed London from 8.30 to 9.45pm. And one of two giants, large four- or five-engine bombers, reached London at 12.15am. And one of its two 660-pound bombs caused the worst London bomb incident of the war when it hit the Odom's Press building in Long Acre, resulting in 38 deaths and 85 injuries. And it's obviously the, the uh, scene that... Um, Brody had visited. Long Acre is only about three to four hundred metres west of the Strand Palace Hotel. Little, little apart from parade seems to have filled the days between the end of leave and embarkation for Egypt on 9th February, uh, 19 February. The journey was by sea to Cherbourg, then a slow train trip to Toronto. Here a connection was made with another troop ship to take them to Egypt's port Said, Disembarking there on 9 March, it was then a four to three hour Three quarters of an hour train trip to Cairo, and finally a short lorry raid, lorry raid, lorry ride, to their final destination, Number Three Cadet Wing at Heliopolis's Palace Hotel. Brody is not displeased with his new surroundings, as he wrote next day. On rising this morning, found we had landed in a rather pretty spot. The palms and flowers around the palace are lovely. The palace itself is a large building with about a thousand rooms. In front we have a number of fine buildings and the Cairo tram runs past the door. At the back is a very large drome and at the back of that again run the sandy hills bounding the desert. Away in the distance, 15 miles, over one corner of the drome are to be seen the pyramids. After going through the usual ceremony on entering new barracks, we had leave granted from 1pm until midnight. So off we five went to Cairo. 20 minutes by train, sorry, 20 minutes over by tram and the sweetest running tram I was ever in. Had a look round the principal streets, but could not see much as the shops were closed. So shut. So went to the park and had tea and ice cream, and later on a Welsh band played. Within days, however, it was Brodie's turn to be struck down with measles. Full recovery was slow, and it was not until 14 April that he was able to return to the wing. He now had to work hard to make up for lost time, but he was not troubled by the end-of-course exams held on 8 May, as he explained. Our cadet wing exams were held today in the main hall. Each cadet had a table to himself and the exam started at 8am. 8 to 9 was military law, 10 to 11 organisation and tactics, and then a big break for lunch. 3 to 4 topography, 5 to 6 machine gun, Lewis and Vickers. It was a very windy day as most of the chaps, and as most of the chaps had the wind up, more or less. But I don't think there was any need for it, as the papers were more or less very easy. This evening, Orr, Woods and I went for a stroll round Heliopolis. Went out as far as the Turkish prison camp. What a relief it was not to have to spend every minute of the evening swatting, as we have been doing of late. Three days later, he was posted to number three school of aeronautics, also based at Heliopolis's Palace Hotel. There not being accommodation available in the hotel itself, the cadets had to live in tents. The subject matter was much the same as that experienced by Blackwell when he did his course at Reading at the then number one school of military aeronautics. There were a few of the more relevant entries from the Brady diary. Monday 13th, started our new our course in the SLA this morning. Work started off with falling in for half hours PT at 6.15, breakfast at 7.30, and at 8.30 the lectures began. Two hours out of the day devoted to lectures, one hour Morse, one hour machine gun, and then one hour rigging, one hour engines. 
We have four hours off in the middle of the day, restarting in the evening at 4.45 and going until 6.45, tea at 7. In the SFA we get out every evening, but those who wish to attend to their notes and get their notes all written up must stay in and not be racing about very much. At least I found it so. Thursday 20th. Uh, we still June, 20th June. Um, had the first part of our SFA exam today. Had one and a half hours for map reading and general paper in the morning, and in the afternoon two hours for rigging. The rigging and map reading papers were cushy, but the G paper was much harder. Friday 21st, finished exams today. Had three hours on engines in the morning and two hours on art obs in the afternoon. Neither of the past papers were catchy. It is a relief to know the exams are over. There's been a strenuous time the last week or two. I've hardly had a moment's spare time. There's been so many subjects to get up. Wednesday 26th, attended buzzer this morning. It's Morse. The exam results were put up today. I got an average of 71.5% map reading, 79% general paper, Sorry, I've got that wrong. I got an average of 71.5%. Map reading 79%, general papers 57, rigging 76, engine 66, art ob 61, and books 90. Next day, Brady was issued with his flying kit. Quite why then is not explained, as his first flight in Egypt was still two months away. As part of the new training regime, trainees now had to attend an armament course at a specialist unit before beginning flying training. In the Middle East, the armament school was based at Abbasaya in the neighbourhood of Cairo. Brody arrived there on Thursday, 1st August. This was another move that he was more than happy to make. Right glad I was to get away from the palace after being there nearly 21 weeks. Arrived at Abbasaya at 3pm and I got into the same tent with Woods, who was, who was still there as part of the previous course. There are only two in a tent over here. The meals are much better over here and are much cleaner and better served up. And the jippo waiters are clean and not greasy like the fellows over at the palace. The course concentrated on the Lewis and Vickers machine guns and in the final exam Brodie could report that he got 78% and a first class pass through all exams. Next day he was posted to number 8 training depot station at Ismailia. This was also the date his, of his commissioning as a second lieutenant, though it would be some time before he learnt of this. As with Blackwell there is in, insufficient time to detail Brodie's flying training here. It was, however, at Ismaili on the 26th where he got to make his first flight since his last at Sockburn almost 11 months earlier. This was in a DH-6, the well-known clutching hand, with New Zealander Charles Pratt as his instructor. Rose at 3.30 this morning and Woods and I made our first flight since leaving New Zealand. We were up in DH-6 number 8 machine. I had 40 minutes in the air and found the old machine very steady and easy to control. The air was lovely, there would be no bumps at all. I found my instructor, Mr. Pratt, a very good hand. On Friday, the 6th of September, Brody transferred to number 19 training dep sta depot station at El Rimmel, where he converted onto the Avro 504J. Three weeks into his course on the 29th, he witnessed a fatal accident at uncomfortably close quarters. Was on formation this morning, but as it was foggy, first did not get away until over an hour late. There were four Avros and two pups in the formation. And we were just formed up when an awful accident happened. Two Avros, actually an Avro and a pump, pup, on my left front collided at 4,000 feet. The wings of one were smashed and the tail was torn off another. And I watched until both. I watched both until I saw them crash to earth. One was Simpson out of our flight, and the other a sea flight bus. It was an awful damper on things. And Simpson was a fine chap. 
On 10 October, Brodie converted onto the Sopwith pup. Ten days later, finally received his officer's uniform, only to discover that one drawback is you have to so many salutes to return. On 28 October, in a sure sign that Brodie was considered good fighter pilot material, he was posted to Number 5 Fighting School at Heliopolis. The FS was commanded at that time by New Zealander Christopher Musgrave. While there, Brodie moved on from Pups to Newports and finally to the Sopwith Camel. On 16, Nove sorry, on 16 January 1919, a machine gun exam and a last flip on the Camel was topped off with his graduation as a fully qualified service pilot. So I at last got my wing, he diaryised. Flying training had been winding down since not long after the armistice. Machines too were becoming increasingly scarce. Brodie's reference above to THE Camel was literally true. On 20 February, a month after completing his flying training recorded, instructional flying has now ceased for all pupils except Australians, Greeks and a few Frenchmen who are taking a course here at prison. Several, uh, well, several chances to leave for England during February were stymied for one reason or another, and over the next three months he served with a special unit called S Squadron, also at Heliopolis, I think. But even this was interrupted for a month on his catching a fever. His temperature at one point soaring to 105 degrees Fahrenheit. On 18 March, on his first flight with S Squadron while accompanying another pilot as an observer, their machine suffered engine trouble when en route to Abakur, escorting a mail plane. A forced landing was made in a field while the local Egyptians were at first quite. A forced landing was made in a field, and while the local Egyptians were at first quite friendly and helpful, events suddenly took a nasty turn. We got their assistance to push the bus up on the railway, which we intended to cross and take off down a road. But when we got on the railway, they suddenly turned hostile, and before we could get our arms, about 1,000 of them smashed the bus with sticks and stones, and we had to take refuge in Muhammad Ali Shira's house, where we stayed all day. He sent word to Tanta for us, a place 25 miles away, and three armed, three armed cars came to us, and we got to Tanta at midnight. On 20 May, Brodie was finally able to sail for England. Three months later, he embarked for New Zealand disembarking at Wellington on 25 October 1919. Fifty years later, 1969 saw three significant aeronautical events. The first flights of the Boeing 747 jumbo jet, capable of carrying 500 passengers. The Concorde, which would fly passengers at twice the speed of sound, and the first landing of men on the moon. About a third of Coe and Sockburn graduates were still alive at the time. They must have occasionally marvelled at the extraordinary pace at which aviation developed from when it was little more than a dream at the time of their birth in the last years of the 19th century. Thank you. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs>